This morning, as we get into this message, in the world of preaching, it's, it's kind of discombobulated. Here's what I mean by that. It is one part illustrative, the message is, and it is one part exegesis, which is the breaking down of Scripture as you go through it. Most people that teach preaching or what's referred to as hermeneutics would tell you to never, never put a message together like this. But it's just kind of what happened as I was writing. And in the process of it, it stirred my soul deeply. In just a minute, Deanie's going to come and pray that it will do the same for you. But first, I want you to open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Get your Bible open to this passage and then just leave it there. All other scripture that I'm going to use this morning will be projected up on the screen because I want you to set up housekeeping in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Dini, come lead us in prayer. Why don't you stand up with me, and if you have your Bible, hold it in your hand while we pray, okay? Father, uh, as we come this morning, God, uh, we know that we can hang on to your word. We know your word is truth, and it has what is necessary for us. So God, this morning, the message that Phil has prepared that you have put on his heart and mind and that comes from your word, God, will you stir our hearts and will you teach us things and inspire our, our thoughts through your spirit so that uh, we can um, overcome the schemes of the devil that he would have for us. We find protection in you and your word and your spirit guides us. So we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Dean. So I was studying for this message. I found myself confronted with an emotion that I don't know that I have ever really stopped and thought about. I know I've experienced it, but I don't know that I have ever just pushed pause 
and made my way through it. Now, at first, as I, I felt it welling up inside of me, I thought I was dealing with an instinct. And then I had to push my way through all of that to recognize that it was actually an emotion. If you were to talk with a lot of people, they would tell you that it fits in the realm of instinct. But I believe it, it starts there and it crosses over into emotion. So I just want to make sure that we're all thinking the same way as we talk about this. I chose the word emotion very carefully. The American Psychology Association might just help us understand that a little bit better than any way that I could. Take a look at this. Researchers have discovered quite a bit about what constitutes our emotions and our behavioral and physical reactions to them. Emotions are often confused with feelings and moods, but the three terms are not interchangeable. Emotion is defined as a complex reaction pattern involving experiential, behavioral, and psychological elements. Emotions are how individuals deal with matters or situations they find personally significant. That's why I chose the word emotion as I was having to make my way through what I was dealing with in my office writing this message. The emotion that I was facing really could be summed up with just one word, but it may take you by surprise. Here's the word, protective. It was a protective emotion. Now, usually when we hear about protective emotions or protection as an emotion, it is a self-protective application, meaning it is that sense within us that causes us to either fight or flee in the face of danger. But that's not the one I'm talking about. And that's why this one is so unique. I am talking about a protective emotion as it is applied to those that I love. I have experienced it at least five times personally. Now, there may be more than that, but there's at least five. And you could probably go back and work your way through however many times you might have faced this. Let me walk you through the five times that I remember personally. The first happened on the very first night after our honeymoon when Tina and I got back to our little apartment, basement apartment, that flooded when it rained and from time to time was overrun by crickets to the point that my wife would wake me up in the middle of the night and say things like this, find it and kill it. That's, that's when I really knew who I had married. It was when the cricket infestation was raging in our little apartment. Find it and kill it. Well, that first night that we got back, I found myself thinking, and I can remember this vividly, I love this woman so deeply that I don't want anything bad to ever happen to her, and I will do whatever it takes to make sure that that never happens. I don't want anything bad to happen to her. Man, I remember that feeling that first night back in our little apartment. That's where it just really hit me. There was this overwhelming sense of protectiveness, changed everything for me. And I think part of that came as a result of recognizing this. Prior to that, I was living under my dad's protection. And it was his job, his responsibility to protect his family. But after we shared our vows with one another, I took that responsibility for Tina from her dad 
And at the same time, I accepted it for myself. So this protective emotion began to well up. The next time happened in 1993 when our oldest son was born and it happened two other times after that in hospital rooms when I held our children for the very first time. I can remember vividly thinking with each one of them in my arms, I don't want anything bad to ever happen to this child. They have been placed in my protection and I will do whatever I can, whatever is within my power to keep anything bad from ever happening to them. Notice I said within my power because sometimes, sometimes it's outside of our control. Sometimes it's outside of our power. I wrote a letter to each one of our children the night they were born as I held them in one arm and Tina was sleeping and I had a pen in the other hand and I wrote each one of them a letter that captured that emotion. I don't want anything bad to ever happen to you. As I hold you here, I, I find myself loving you in such a way that I've never loved another person like this. And I want you to know that it is protective. It's bringing something out within me. This week, I, I found myself also thinking, maybe it, it's happened a couple other times, when I held our grandchildren the days that they were born and found myself thinking those same types of things. But I, I had to push through that a little bit. And here's what I recognized. I am a minor character in that particular story. That role of protection belongs to their parents. And I'm just there in a supporting role. Deanie and I talked a little about that Friday afternoon as, as both of us were just kind of kicking that can down the trail saying, hmm, isn't this a different thing? Now, of course, I love all three of my grandchildren in such a way that if, if you were coming at them and I thought you were a threat, you don't have to worry about them. You'll contend with me. But my expectation is their dads will be in front of them. He'll be the one that's standing there before I have to get there. And that's just kind of God's order of things. So I, I don't put them necessarily in the same category. I'm still processing that. So there's the first four. The fifth time, the fifth time that I found myself dealing with this protective emotion happened in January of 2003 when I preached my first message as the senior pastor of Libby Christian Church. And afterwards, I remember this vividly, Afterwards, I thought, I love these people, and I don't want anything bad to happen to them. And I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes within my power to keep that from happening. That's that protective emotion. I'm pretty positive this week as I've fought my way through it, that that is a God-given emotion as it is a God-modeled emotion. I like the way Mark Batterson helps us understand this. Listen to this. This comes from one of the books that he's written. I would die for my children without a moment's hesitation under any circumstances. That is the purest and strongest concentration of protective instincts I've ever felt. That's the Heavenly Father's deepest impulse towards us. You are the apple of his eye, and anyone who messes with you messes with him. His protective instincts are most poignantly seen at the cross, the place where unconditional love and omnipotent power form the amalgam called amazing grace. That's where the creator stepped between every fallen sinner and the fallen angel, Satan. 
That's where the advocate took his stand against the accuser of the brethren. The sinless son of God took the fall for us. I like the way he wraps up that teaching. This is it. The cross is God's way of saying, you are worth dying for. That's how the Lord sees us. That is a protective emotion. Batterson would lean back into the instinct side of it, but I really believe it is an emotion. It is fueled by a deep love. The Lord has that type of love for us. That's what sent his son to the cross. The apostle Paul, it appears, has the exact same type of love for the churches that he writes to. His letters are fueled with emotion, a protective emotion. Even the letters like the one to the church in Colossae, written to people that he never met, but they had a special place in his heart. The apostle Paul was telling this church, you are worth dying for. Jesus modeled that and he wanted them to know that he would stand between them and anyone that was coming at them. And that's really what the, the point of this letter is. Paul is standing between this young church in Colossa that was planted by his friend Epaphras, but he had never met these people. Paul was standing between them and the attacks of the enemy. Those attacks were coming, and you might remember this from a few weeks ago, from a group of people known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics were bringing a false teaching about Jesus into an early church, a young church that was just learning who Jesus was. And Paul didn't like what they were doing. He shouldn't have liked what they were doing. You see, the Gnostic belief system was attacking the person of Jesus Christ. The Gnostic belief system was bringing a grace plus philosophy to Christianity. Now, one of their biggest problems was really wrapped up in, in this actual fact about Gnosticism. They believed that Jesus was just one way to heaven. They believed that he was one path and that there were many other paths. Now, that flies completely in the face of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus makes a statement like that and the Gnostics come on the scene saying, yes, Jesus is one way to heaven, one way to the Father, one way to God, but there are many other ways that you can make your way there as well. They are already in trouble with the word of God. And so Paul has to come back on the scene and set the record straight, reminding them that Jesus made statements just like this. And when Jesus makes a statement like this, folks, hang your hat on it. There is actually a new movement called Christian Gnosticism that is making its way through the church today. Now, remember, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. It's knowledge-based. And so there's these people that believe that they are highly educated that are bringing this idea of other paths to God. They're bringing false teaching that stands in direct contradiction 
to the Word of God, even directly contradicting John chapter 14, verse 6. Universalism is one of those direct contradictions. Universalism says that everybody's going to heaven. Everybody acknowledges the same God. We just call him by different names. Folks, when you hear somebody say that, you let red flags fly all around you. People are attacking the base teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. You be careful of that. You be leery of that. You keep yourself distant from it. That's the kind of thing the Apostle Paul was having to come and address the things he was having to try to clean up all the way back to the church in Colossa, and now it's happening again in the church worldwide, the Christian church worldwide. Some of the, the teachings of Christian Gnosticism are absolutely appalling. Take a look at this one. It's the belief that Jesus' physical body was not real but only seemed to be physical, and that his spirit descended upon him at his baptism, but left him just before his crucifixion. That's a popular teaching today. It's making its way into mainline denominations. It's making its way into Christian churches. It's making its way into the pulpit and the classrooms of churches everywhere. That's a problem. In fact, it is a multifaceted problem that Christian Gnostics have to try to figure out. There's at least three issues with that. Here they are. The virgin birth, the divinity of Jesus, and what is referred to in theological terms as the hypostatic union. The combination of the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. When you allow that type of teaching to take root... Oh boy, is it ever a problem. And people are allowing that to take root. So Paul would say, I'll stand between you and that type of teaching. As a pastor, I want to say the same. I'll stand between you and that type of teaching. Because it, it's hurting a lot of people. It's leading a lot of folks astray. So Paul writes this beautiful letter to the church in Colossa to set the record straight. And I love how he addresses it. I really do. I love how he gets after this issue. So let's just get into it in Colossians chapter 2. We are going to use a Bible study technique that I've told you about before and have actually illustrated a time or two, but today I want you to think a whole lot about it. It is a wonderful, wonderful tool when you want to study Scripture at a deeper level, and it is called, very simply, outlining, just outlining. If you will take a passage of scripture and begin to break it down, you will find context, you will find meaning, you will find application, you will find, and you could continue filling in the blank, a number of deeper levels to a passage that if you just read it and move on, you will miss. So if you will slow down and outline a passage you can actually get into the depth of it. I had a professor in Bible college, Dr. Don Leach. Betty Ward knows Don Leach. He just passed away not, not very long ago, and I'm surprised he made it that far. I, he had to have been 180 when he died. He was, he was old when he was teaching us at Manhattan Christian College. Dr. Leach made us outline passages, made us do it. I hated that class. 
I hated outlining. Today I find great value in it. So if you're ever studying a book or a passage and you want to mine the depths of it, slow down, get a piece of paper, maybe a notebook, and you start outlining that book. And as you break it down, you will find all kinds of different ways of going deeper and deeper and deeper into what's being taught there. So I'm going to show you how to do it this morning. This is my outline of the passage that we just read. And I'm going to show you some other scripture that comes alongside each one of these breakdowns to support what we're talking about. But first, you have to remember... You have to remember that Paul is battling against these folks that thought they had a better way. So that's how everything starts. The very first point in my outline looks just like this. His reason for writing. Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen again to what Paul says. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, There he's just announced why he's writing. I am bringing this letter to you so that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. They're going to sound good. That's the plausible side. I don't want them to take hold. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's Paul's reason for writing to him, and he follows it up with some good encouragement. You're standing firm. Make sure you stay there. You are standing firm. Point number two, remember your beginning. This is verses six and seven. Listen to what he writes. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. I love the fact that the apostle would actually say, the way your faith began is the way your faith has to continue. How it started is the very way that it will sustain you. So remember how it began. To the church in Ephesus, about a hundred miles away from the church in Colossae, he would write this. Apparently, the church in Ephesus was battling some of the same things, and so Paul wanted to remind them of how things began, knowing that the church in Colossae would read the letter written to the church in Ephesus, so it would just be passed around. To the church in Ephesus, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result, a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is a foundational passage for how a relationship with Jesus begins. For it's by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It was of the utmost importance that this church in Colossae know that, and you'll see why in just a minute. But really, what Paul was doing by reminding the church in Ephesus of this truth, and then subsequently reminding the church in Colossae of this truth, was he was holding on to a teaching that Jesus would circle back to for the church in Ephesus, not Colossae, but the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation in the seven letters that he wrote to the churches. That church, the Ephesian church, was a special one in God's heart. Listen to what he says to them. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chelsea, let's go back just one slide. Look at what's highlighted. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Folks, that is good medicine for any relationship. If that is a marriage relationship, if that is a friend relationship, or if that is summarizing our walk with God, remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. In some ways, what Jesus is teaching the church in Ephesus, and Paul's kind of reminding the church in Colossae of the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, is that we tend to get complacent and lazy in our relationships. And when we get complacent and lazy in our relationships, they get strained. Distance creeps in. We start looking other places. We allow things to capture our curiosity that should never capture our curiosity. That's true in every physical relationship we have, and that is true in the relationship that we have with the Lord through His Son. Don't get complacent and lazy. And the best way to do that is hang on to the things you did at first. Keep working at it. Keep working at it. You know what it's like when you're in a dating relationship or the early days of marriage. Man, you're going to pour everything you have into winning the heart of the other person. But sadly enough, when we have that heart, we just kind of stop doing anything. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't do that. Don't do that. You keep working at it. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. You keep pouring yourself into it. Paul's saying the same thing to the church in Colossae. Remember what it was like in the beginning? Remember when you were saved by faith and your faith was so strong? Hang on to that for all your worth. Hang on to that for all your worth because when the enemy comes against you and the attacks come, that's what will sustain you. Hang on to it. You might think, well, how do I do that? Well, 30 years of counseling marriages, I have figured out the way that you do that. Here it is, communication. That is the first place to pour effort. Talk, talk a lot. Now, part of talking is listening. Listen a lot, pay attention. Make sure that you continue to pour that effort into it. Let's just continue our illustration from marriage. You remember those days when you were dating this, for us, this long time ago? So, 33, 34 years ago, we could stay up all night long, talk to each other on the phone, and we'd tell our roommates that we're so amazed by our ability to do that, that, yeah, we're exhausted, but we stayed up all night long, and we talked on the phone. 
Today, people are texting all night long, continuing conversations, FaceTime conversations all night long. Well, do the same thing with God. Learn how to talk and learn how to listen. The book of Romans, the Apostle Paul teaches us a bit about that. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Get into the word of God. That's how you're going to hear from God. Get into the word of God. Now, you're going to hear from his spirit as well, but you need his word and his spirit to go together. Get into the word of God. If you want your faith to be strong, you're going to have to open your Bible. Not just on Sunday morning. You're going to have to open it regularly and absorb everything you can and listen. Listen to what God has for you. Pay close attention to it. Oh, pray. Tell God what's on your heart too. He longs to hear from you. It's relational. So that's how you hold on to what you did at first. So once those two things are in place, Paul's reason for writing and then his encouragement to do what you did at first, we move on to number three. Watch out for the wolves. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10 read like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is important to Paul. This is important. This isn't the only time he will battle the Gnostics. He'll also battle Judaizers. The Judaizers were a little bit different than the Gnostics. When he writes the book of Galatians to the church there, he's dealing with the Judaizers. The Judaizers would look at Christianity and then they would attach Jewish customs and Jewish law to this new grace-filled faith. And they would say that it was necessary. Listen, they would say it was necessary for a person to follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved, even though they have been saved by grace. So in the book of Galatians, Paul will come against that teaching. Well, to the church in Colossae, he's coming against the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a little different than the Judaizers. The Gnostics, well, they had this almost four-part philosophy to the things that they taught. Some of it had to do with Eastern mysticism, some with astrology, some came out of philosophy, and some came out of Jewish legalism. And so Paul had to come against that Jewish legalism. And what the Gnostics were teaching was not that it was necessary in order for you to be saved that you follow Jewish laws and customs, but the Gnostics would say if you really want to draw near to God, you're going to have to follow their customs. And they taught it like wolves among sheep. And people started listening. And I want you to remember that the church in Colossae was not in Israel. It was not in Israel. It was in Asia Minor. These were not Jewish people that had become Christian, at least not most of them. Most of the folks there were coming from a different belief system entirely. And so here come the Gnostics trying to attach legalism from the Jewish background to their new faith. And they were doing it like wolves. It's not the only time we would find a warning to avoid the wolves. Take a look. Pay careful attention to yourselves, 
to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is Paul writing to the elders in Ephesus. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Because wolves have always been hunting God's children. So there's a warning to always be alert. Part of the role of the elders is to guard the doctrine of the church, to watch over the teaching of the church, to keep the wolves at bay. By doing that, they're watching over your life. Trust them with that. But you've got to do some work yourself in it. Because you don't always have the opportunity to sit down with a pastor or one of the elders and say, what do you think about this? You can any time. But sometimes the wolves are coming at you in ways that you don't even see. So you always be alert. You pay attention. You pay attention. Well, back in Colossians chapter 2, in my outline of it, Paul would say, avoid the deception of low-hanging fruit. Look at this in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that's, that's this low-hanging fruit of legalism, trying to drag in these Old Testament customs, these Old Testament laws, things that applied to the Jewish people, but Jesus never applied them to Christians, like circumcision. So the Gnostics are saying, if you really want to be close to God, then you're going to have to be circumcised like the Jewish people were. Well, Paul just right away addresses that issue, but did you catch how he did it? He connected it to baptism, saying that you've experienced something in your heart through Christian baptism. I love that. He teaches it in other places as well. So does Peter. Take a look at Paul's teaching from the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It's the beauty of baptism. That's where our walk with the Lord begins. So when we have that type of an anchor point, we have something to go back to. This is how I felt when I made my decision for Christ. That faith was welling up inside of me. My heart was changed. My heart was changed. My heart of stone became a heart of flesh. Beautiful thing that happens in baptism. Part of that beauty is described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When Christ's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's a pledge of a good conscience to the Lord. It's the reshaping of our heart. And friends, that is protective. That is protective. So Paul comes against the low-hanging fruit of Jewish legalism and he says, let's look at, at what Jesus has for us. It's, it's higher and better. Take a look at this. It isn't physical, it's spiritual. It is spiritual. It doesn't have to do with the physical body. It has to do with your heart. So Paul directs people to that. And right after that, he leaves them with this beautiful admonition. Take a look. This is number five. You've been made alive in Christ. Now live like it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Remember how he started? This is my reason for writing? Well, let me sum this up, this section up, by saying you've been made alive in Christ, now live like it. If I were to take that entire section, verses 13 through 15, and paraphrase them just myself, this is what that paraphrase would look like. Jesus' death on the cross canceled any debt that stood between you and God. Man, pick that up and live like it. Live like it. But if you're not sure what that debt is, well, you need to see this from God's word. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus canceled that debt when he died on the cross. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody add more to him on the cross. Don't let them put a burden on you that doesn't belong there because Jesus canceled your debt when he died on the cross. It was paid for. It was paid for. And Paul brings it back around simply by saying, now live like it. Live like it. Keep the wolves at bay and live like it. Moving forward, moving farther, moving deeper into your faith that you had from the very beginning. Keep it growing whatever it takes, because God is on your side. And in the, the midst of all of that teaching, he shows us that victory is ours. He shows us in verse 15 how we have the victory because Jesus is on our side. Listen to this again, Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The victory is already there because he is on your side. You could say amen if you wanted to. Well, you know, say it like you don't really mean it. That's okay. Amen. amen. There we go. There we go. I cannot read that passage of scripture and not think about my friend Ricky McBroom and my great adversary at Wilbur Junior High School, Benson Baker. Benson Baker was, he was vicious. He was vicious. He'd been held back for about 12 years. So he was older than any of us, and he was significantly bigger than any of us. And he was as tough as they come, and he was as mean as a rattlesnake. I am not kidding when I tell you that Benson Baker's favorite activity at Wilbur Junior High School was to set us on fire in the middle of class and then tell us if we said anything about it, he'd kill us. So while you're banging away on your leg to put the fire out that Benson just started on you, you're thinking there is no way that I can say anything about this. 
carried a little tube of lighter fluid with him that he would squirt on you and he had a lighter and now you're on fire. And so in the middle of class, you're banging away at it. Benson beat somebody up on a daily basis. One of his favorite targets was the vice principal of our school. Now let me tell you, at Wilbur Junior High School, our vice principal's name was Mr. Knuckles. I'm not kidding. And he, he lived his name pretty well. He and Benson would go at one another in the lobby, and man, oh man, what a, what a battle it was. I had a pretty fast mouth, and I thought that was going to be the way to defeat Benson. I was wrong. I was wrong. I knew I couldn't win in a physical fight with Benson, so I thought I could put him to shame with my mouth. I couldn't. And Benson let me know that I couldn't. But I had a friend named Ricky McBroom. Ricky was the only person at Wilbur Junior High School that could put Benson in his place. And Ricky did it a number of different times. number of different times. Ricky was my friend. So Ricky would show up when I needed him the most. And I'd be trying to harpoon, verbally harpoon Benson. And I would know that there was a pretty good throttling coming after it. And all of a sudden, Ricky would just step out of the shadows. Ricky was my friend. I ended up beating Benson because Ricky was my friend. And then Benson got arrested finally and no longer came back to school. And we all celebrated. It was huge. It was huge. Ricky was my friend. But Jesus is my friend as well. And when Satan comes against me, Jesus is right beside me. And the victory is won. I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back. I hope you don't either. Why don't you stand with me? As soon as our service is over, and it will be in about 90 seconds, our prayer room is open. If you want to talk to somebody about baptism, if you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, if you want to talk to somebody about the church, if you know that your faith has been under attack or that you are under attack and you need some help getting to the victory, why don't you just go over to the prayer room? Our elders will be over there. Deanie will be over there. We have other decision counselors be over there. They'll pray with you. They'll get in the fight with you. They'll help you remember that Jesus is your friend. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful that Paul stood in the gap for this young church in Colossae. And subsequently for us. Thank you for the warnings that he gives and thank you for the passion in which he gives them. I pray, Lord, that we will listen closely, hear what he had to say. But more than that, I pray that we will listen closely to your spirit. And we will hear what you have to say as you tell us that we are worth dying for. And that you will always be there to fight for us. Help us listen, Lord, and accept. These next few moments as the service wraps up, they're, they're holy moments. So I pray you'll do great things in the lives of your people during them. In Jesus' name, amen.